Salutations, super sexy cinephiles. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of The George Sanders Show. My name is Mike. With me, as always, is the mustache to my math out, Sean the Thrill Man Gilman. Hi, Sean. Hello, Mike. This episode is simply swimming with spies, subterfuge, and pseudonyms. We'll be tackling two films today, Stanley Don's playful 1963 thriller, Charade, as well as Oscar winner Jonathan Demme's flashy remake, The Truth About Charlie, from 2002. We'll also give an overview of Stanley Don's impressive career and pick our Cinema Central remakes. But first, cue up the Mancini and bring me an apple martini. Let's follow Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant all across Paris in Charade. Here you are. Where? On the street where you live. How about once more around the park? How about getting out of here? Come on, child, out. Won't you come in for a minute? No, I won't. I don't bite, you know. Unless it's called for. How would you like a spanking? How'd you like a punch in the nose? Stop treating me like a child. Well, then stop behaving like one. Now, if you want to tell me what's troubling you, fine. If not, I'm tired, it's late, and I want to go home to bed. Oh. Do you know what's wrong with you? No, what? Nothing. Okay, that was a clip from Charade, Stanley Donna's 1963 film starring Audrey Hepburn as a uh, recently widowed woman who uh, suddenly gets uh, caught up in a mystery as a bunch of strangers from her husband's past uh, come back uh, claiming that she has money um, that was his and they want it. And Cary Grant plays a dashing Cary Grant type who may be on her side or he may be on the side of the villains. And... Uh, We've both seen this film a number of times, Sean, or at least I've seen it m- multiple oh, times. Oh, yeah, I've seen it a lot. We, it was uh, yet another former Metro Classic. As, uh, <laughs> that's right. This show is just going to be... becoming a trend on the George Sanders show. That's right. We're just going to reminisce about every movie we ever ran at a repertory uh, theater. But, uh, yeah, it's a fantastic film. It, it really holds up to multiple viewings. Um, and it's funny to me watching it. You know, it's been several years. I think the last time I did see it was when we ran it for Metro Classics, which was probably about five years ago. Um, and I remember, you know, speci- you know, I, I remember the basic plot elements and stuff, but there are still little things that, that surprise me, and I forget, you know, I forget how many twists and turns there are and how many, you know, um, fake-outs there are, especially with Grant's character. I mean, he has, like, five pseudonyms in this thing um, as, as you go through... And um, how it all plays out, and it's 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 just a really fun movie um, all around, and I, I really enjoy it. Um, does it hold up for you? I, I assume it does. Definitely, it's uh, it's on it's on the short list of the most charming movies I've ever seen, and it helps that uh, it's it stars you know two of the most charming actors ever. Like, who do you? Th- Here's my question for you: Who who? is more charming, Audrey Hepburn or Cary Grant? God, oh, man, that's that's really tough. I mean, taking my uh, heterosexual lust out of the equation, uh, you know, but I'm actually really attracted to Cary Grant, too, I must say. I mean, you know, if I was going to run away with any guy, it might be Cary Grant. Even I, 60-year-old Cary Grant? Even 60-year-old Cary Grant. I mean, he's... You know, I know that famously this is, uh, 
one of his last film roles because he realized he was, you know, getting past the point of... Uh, He's 25 know. years older than Audrey Hepburn in this film. Yes. But you know what? It still works. I mean, it does. And I guess... I guess I think I'd go with Grant. I think he's a little more charming than Audrey Hepburn. Um, you know, I just picture him, you know, taking that shower in this movie with his clothes on. And, and how awesome <laughs> with, that with is. With his clothes on, of course, yeah. is how you picture Cary Grant taking a shower. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's how charming the man is. Um, yeah, it, the chemistry, and the chemistry between them is palpable in this. And I think he said, after finishing this movie, they asked him, you know, what's what's next for you, or what, what do you want to achieve next? And he said, I just want to make another movie with Audrey Hepburn. Well, who wouldn't want to? I know, I know. Well, speaking of uh, Stanley Don and Audrey Hepburn and all this stuff, uh, and Metro Classics, actually, I remember walking out of uh, Funny Face when we ran that... Um, in which Hepburn is, is paired with the as old, if not older, Fred Astaire. Yes, yes, she is. Um, and I remember walking out and turning to uh, my girlfriend, who I'm still with, by the way, um, <laughs> and saying to her, Audrey Hepburn is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. I mean, she just like, you know, I, I don't think of her when I'm not watching her movies or whatever, but my God, man. I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, <laughs> they, it's just incredible. Yeah, she's uh, she's 34 when she did Charade, which is younger than I am now. And you're old. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't. That doesn't seem right. She seems older. Yeah, she's and 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 you know, I shouldn't get you know just talk about her looks and her her charm and all that stuff. You know, um, because she's also a phenomenal actress and she does a, a you know, she carries the weight of this movie. It's a really difficult part because her, her character is 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 constantly ping ponging back and forth between being suspicious of Cary Grant and, and lusting after him and and she managed to manages to sell all of these reversals without the character seeming like ditzy or flighty or 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 dumb. She does. Um you know, if I do have one criticism about this film, um it is it's it gets to be a little unbelievable like the fifth time she forgives Cary Grant's lies. Um not because of her, but just because the story is so convoluted, which is part of the fun, but you know, watching it this time, you know, I kind of did a little eye roll. You know, um, when... well, well, so much of our acceptance of that comes from it being Cary Grant, right? And with with a different actor cast in the part, it's not it's not so believable. It's you need maybe we'll talk about that some... later in the show. <laughs> you need somebody as 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 charismatic and as charming as Cary Grant because you'll you will forgive him anything. Yeah, no, he's yeah, absolutely. I totally I totally agree with that. Um, and besides the two leads, uh, this movie is just chock full of uh, great performances, great, you know, people that are, um, you know, the villains, you know, the, um, we have a return of uh, James Coburn from, you know, we spoke of last week in Ride Lonesome, and he plays uh, a, a pretty sinister dude in this. Tex, the American. Yeah, Tex. <laughs> also not a, not a bright bulb, you know, he's, but he's, you know, he's smarter than George Kennedy. Um Who's also awesome, by the way. George Kennedy, the the very angry one-armed man. Yeah, which, yeah, it's really cool to see him in this movie. Um, and you know who I like a lot, and I don't have the name in front of me, but um, the actor that plays the uh, French detective, uh, mm. who is also, he's, he's kind of, in a way, a surrogate for the audience, because he's kind of... Jacques Marine. That sounds Marine. about right. 
Inspector Edward, Edward Grandpierre. Yeah, he does a really good job. Uh, he's not in it too much, but um, he also can't believe everything that's going on. He's like, "This is ridiculous! All these people are turning up dead in their pajamas," and you know, he's you know, he's kind of poking fun at the at the story in the movie. And uh, but he's also he's also really good. Yeah, this. and uh, Walter Matthau. Oh, and if, I was gonna get to I was gonna get to Matthau. Matthau is awesome. He's just fantastic. I've I've loved his mustache in this movie for years, and uh, the man behind the mustache is also equally um, amazing. Um, because he, uh, you know, he is the ultimate villain of this of this film. And spoiler, <laughs> you know what? We're going to get into it all on this show, people. Um, he. When when you rewatch it, you know, because the first time I saw it, I had no idea that he was the villain. I really didn't didn't see it coming at all. Um, but now, of course, I know that. And watching those early scenes with him, you can see him, and there are little parts of dialogue too that you know you can kind of see his phoniness. Yes, exactly. You know, um, this the uh, repeated motif of him saying spies and she saying agents. You know, and and mixing the two up and stuff like that. And yeah, he does. There's a little bit of sinister, you know. Yeah, there's uh, there. there there are hints that he's not exactly all he appears to be. Yeah, I mean, especially being in an empty office building on his first meeting with her. Yeah, right. And he has the liverwurst sandwiches, <laughs> yeah. which is just creepy. that's the first sign that there's a villain in the room. Yeah. If there's liverwurst, if liverwurst sandwiches. is involved, then then something is up. Yes. So the the thing about the movie is that is that Matthau is not what he appears to be, mm-hmm. uh, but everyone else is. Ultimately, despite ultimately. the fact that that Cary Grant is constantly changing his his name, he's still always Cary Grant. He is, but uh, when you first discover that Cary Grant is quote unquote in cahoots with the villains Coburn. Um, Etc. Uh, when you see him go into their room and and kind of you know hash out the next you know part of their plan with them before going back to Hepburn's room, when he goes back to Hepburn's room, there is a little there's he does play it a little off kilter in that next scene, very subtly, but it does kind of throw you a little bit for a, you know you you start to you do question him for a second you know by the next scene he's Cary Grant again or whatever but. For me, watching it this time, which I think, you know, third or fourth time I've seen it, I still was like, wow, he's he's different than when he was, you know, in her room with her, you know, two minutes ago. Yeah, and um, the, the movie that reminds you of is, is Alfred Hitchcock's Suspicion from mm-hmm. 1941, mm-hmm. where John Fontaine marries, marries Cary Grant and then begins to suspect he might be a murderer and might be trying to kill her, but of course not because he's Cary, Cary Grant, Grant and right. Cary Grant doesn't kill people. Right. Uh... And it's the same the same kind of thing here. Whereas, um, but Donna just kind of plays with that kind of suspenseful notion by switching Hepburn's reaction to him back and forth. She's afraid of him. She loves him. Right. She's afraid of him. She loves him. Whereas with uh, with Hitchcock and Suspicion and Joan Fontaine is just is just constantly like terrified. Right. Well, it's, it, you bring up Hitchcock, and you know this is most often charade is is mentioned as the uh, the best Hitchcock movie Hitchcock never made. Do you really feel like this is is very like much like a Hitchcock movie? Because the more I see it, the less it feels like one. Uh, I don't, and 
another another Audrey Hepburn film that gets um, the kind of Hitchcockian label is uh, Wait Until Dark, right. which came out a few years later um, by uh, Terrence Fisher, I believe, directed it. Alan Arkin's in it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where she's a blind woman who gets terrified by gangsters um, searching for loot that they think she has. Right. Much like... Sheree. Uh, Sheree. <laughs> um the difference, I think, between between Charade and, and Wait Until Dark and, and a Hitchcock movie is with Hitchcock, there's always another level to the filmmaking. There's always like mm-hmm. a deeper kind of psychological undercurrent mm-hmm. of, of really kind of, you know, kind of disturbing darkness or just a, a really um, twisted sense of humor mm-hmm. that I don't really think is in these two Audrey Hepburn movies. I think well, they're, they're very much about about the, the surface of things and the, and the pleasure of charade is, is that pleasure in the surface. And it, you know, it connects to this idea that, that everyone actually is who they appear to be. Like George Kennedy appears to be a monstrous guy and, and he is, is yeah. uh, everyone except Walter Matthau. Right. Um, ends up being exactly what their surface tells you that they are, despite the stories that they say about themselves. And, Charade might be the best shallow movie ever. Like it, it is, it is all surface. All of its right. joys are are just from the playful nature of the the actors working together and the machinations of the plot. But I don't think there's there's a whole lot of depth. I agree, and and I think that's why when I recently rated this on Letterboxd, I gave it uh, a four out of five. Uh, previously, I had it as a four and a half or whatever. And, you know, I don't want to get into my rating systems here, which are all, you know, a lot of rules and regulations going on here, but you're right. Like, um, it does, the fact that there's not much to chew on, you know, like a, like a really great Hitchcock movie, you know, you can analyze it and you can live with it and you can think about it. Um, endlessly. And, the, and you don't the get the Hitchcock that film that came out the same year was, was the birds. Right. Which is just an endlessly fascinating film. Oh, it looks it, amazing. It shows, uh, kind of Hitchcock's willingness to experiment and his willingness to take it's you know it's influenced by Antonioni but it's about birds that attack people um for no given reason I don't I don't I don't know that that Stanley Donner is that ambitious a filmmaker I don't think so either and but you know that's not to say that you know you, not everybody needs to be you know if you can make a Cracker Jack no not, you not know, at all I, I don't I don't uh, think that's a negative I mean uh on, on Letterboxd, I rate everything on the on a scale from three to five stars. So my, my ratings <laughs> are a little skewed because I like everything, but I, I give it a five stars. I think I think it's it's absolutely perfect as a, a, a confection. Yeah, no, it's very good. It's 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 super super fun, um, and I want to talk about some of the. There is some really good filmmaking going on in this movie, um, and I was struck by. Uh, a few shots in particular. Um, there's a choice when Hepburn returns to her uh, apartment uh, before she finds out that her husband is dead, um, and she comes in and it's empty. The whole place has been gutted. I mean, everything is gone, and the camera is, you know, and it's a big high ceiling, you know, Parisian apartment. And the camera in that initial scene when she comes in and she's, you know, adrift and she doesn't know what's going on and she's confused and lost is shot from a corner really high up. So she looks particularly small in this epic, you know, this big empty room. Um, And then as it comes back to that room later uh, when she meets up with Cary Grant, which I think is just a scene or two after that, 
and the camera, you know, she's starting to get her equilibrium together and stuff, and the camera decides to be, you know, flat, you know, on face on and stuff, and, um, it, you know, it, it's a really subtle thing, but it really, you know, demonstrates how the rug has been completely pulled out from beneath her, you know, where she comes back from this vacation, and her husband's dead, and everything is gone, and she has no life, you know, to speak of anymore. Um, and then there's also, I think immediately after that high ceiling shot, uh, it cuts to the morgue where she does identify the body of her husband. And it's got that really great shot from inside the, uh, I don't know what's it's, it's the corpse idea. The, yeah, the, yeah. The corpse POV, um, which is really cool. Um, in which, you know, I guess we'll talk about truth about Charlie when we get to it. Uh, Demi really overuses that shot in Charlie. They do it once in charade and it's like, wow, that's super cool. And then. I swear it happens like 15 times in The Truth About Charlie. But it happens three times. But well, it felt like forever. Um, that that, that kind of that kind of visual playfulness goes along with um, uh, just the playfulness of the film in general. Like it opens with uh, well, it opens with um, the husband uh, Charles getting thrown off the train. But then the, the next shot after the credit sequence is this gun pointing right. at Audrey Hepburn, and then it turns out to be yeah. like a, a kid's water gun. And so it's just. Um, uh, using the visual style to to uh, create a sense of playfulness and, and suspense in in what's ostensibly like a dangerous thriller. Mm-hmm. The camera work in the uh, the scene between Grant fighting uh, George Kennedy on the roof of the American Express building, yeah, uh, is fantastic. I mean, it's really. <laughs> I see you. I see the look on your face there. Uh, uh, I was I was going to talk about that scene, and you don't like it. Um, I've been watching a lot of Hong Kong action movies uh-huh. this year, um, and I, my my standard for what for what counts as like an exceptional uh, acceptable fight scene uh-huh. is a little skewed. Um, well, this is definitely not a Hong Kong action movie, right? <laughs> but I think the I think the camera placement. Um, I think it's it's filmed it's filmed pretty well. The the fight choreography is a little uh, oh the choreography. I'm not talking about the choreography here. The, <laughs> yeah, the choreography is yeah. I mean, come on, you have Cary Grant fighting George Kennedy with a hook. I mean, it's yeah. you know, you're not gonna get acrobatics and stuff. You're gonna get you know rough and tumble you know silliness. But. Yeah, but I mean, even by the the you know the standards of Hollywood in in the early '60s, um, there's uh, fight scenes in From Russia with Love. From the year before, that are that are much more dynamic and, and more impressive. Yeah, I, I don't dispute that. I, I just think that uh, on a technical level, uh, the, the camera work shot through the um, the big like neon light of the American Express building, and it, you know it 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 heightens you know the scene and and, and makes it work the Don, when the uh, Donnan captures the action that is there really well, <laughs> and and as you would expect from a, a maker of, of musicals, he he knows how to film people moving. I just wish he had gotten uh, somebody the uh, the choreographic quality of Gene Kelly or uh, right. Hermes Pan to, to choreograph the fight scene. I, I don't uh, disagree I think, with that. I think the, the final sequence, the, the shootout in the in the colonnade and then um, in the theater mm-hmm. with uh, with Grant and, and Matthau is really well choreographed and really yeah. well put together. I think that's a, a really interesting fight scene. Yeah, that's a very good, yeah, it's a very good um, climax to the film. And, you know, uh, as befitting a movie that is, in a lot of ways, about performance, it, it ends on stage mm-hmm. with, with Walter Matthau hunting Audrey Hepburn. And, and Grant underneath kind of 
pulling the string. Yeah, he, he, pulls the, <laughs> he pulls the floor out from under Matt, though. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a really, it's a really well done uh, scene. And yeah, and when they're having the standoff, Prior to that, you know, uh, Mathau's pointing his gun at uh, Hepburn and, and Grant is slowly sneaking up on Mathau and stuff. That's, to me, where the real uh, thrill lies. You know, like the, the movie prior to that, you know, it's fun and breezy and stuff. But yeah, when it needs to be, boom, you know, this, you know, the stakes are there and you're really, you know, invested. And it, it's, it's kind of, you know, your heart kind of starts pounding um, during that part. I, I think it's really, really good. There's also really, you know, you, you talk about it being breezy and, and fun and stuff. Um, the script, as it were, you know, the, the, the one-liners in the movie, for me, don't work as well as the physical comedy that we get. The little bits, like, Cary Grant with that orange. Like, his facial expressions when he's trying to get the orange off of the, uh, the woman in the dance hall. Sure. Is fantastic. I mean, he's just going for it, you know, he's just mugging, you know, and he's, he's willing to, you know, make himself look like a jackass, and it's great, and for me, I think the funniest part in the whole movie is Audrey Hepburn uh, playing a spy when she's trying to follow Cary Grant out on the streets of Paris, and she's got the, you know, uh, sunglasses on, and definitely, oh, it's just and hilarious. And she keeps that poor French man who thinks Audrey Hepburn wants to talk to him. He was German, wasn't he? Yeah, German, yeah, right, he's, yeah. a, he's a tourist. Yeah, he's a tourist. Um, Fraulein or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, those two parts to me were just hysterical. I mean, I was just... Uh, they both are really great comedians. Yeah, well, Grant, you know, is is on the short list of greatest comic actors ever. Um, I don't think he's... Uh, where would you put him as the great among the greatest actors ever, though? You know, I, I do love Cary Grant. I really, really, really love Cary Grant. Um if I haven't made that apparent yet. Um, but yeah, I, you know, he plays Cary Grant, and and that's fine. Uh, but I've never seen him really have to carry any sort of emotional heft or anything in a film. Um, so I, I think as a movie star, he can't be topped. But as an actor, yeah, he's he's okay. Yeah, I, me- I you know, I kind of mentioned offhand last week that... that- my pick for the greatest actor ever is, is James Stewart, and um, who also worked with Hitchcock a lot. Who also worked with Hitchcock a lot, but in in Stewart's Hitchcock films and in his films with Anthony Mann, he he's willing to go to like some really dark places and really kind of mm-hmm. plumb the the psychology of like the James Stewart star persona. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in in his Capra films, like uh, It's a Wonderful Life or something, there's you know there's like the sunny all American Jimmy mm-hmm. Stewart, but there's also this real kind of kind of tortured psyche underneath all of that, and you know his his willingness to 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 do that kind of thing is what I think makes him the greatest actor ever. And and in Cary Grant, I don't see that same kind of willingness. Like his his Hitchcock parts are are much more surfacey. They're much more just just charming. Yeah. Oh, totally. I agree. Guys. With uh, uh, and I think his his best role is in uh, in North by Northwest. I think Hitchcock picked up on on this kind of hollowness in Cary Grant's and he plays the, the ultimate hollow man in North by Northwest where his, his name is Roger O Thornhill and the O stands for nothing. Mm-hmm. But we, we've digressed. Uh, suffice it to say everyone should go watch the Philadelphia story, which stars Jimmy Stewart. And <laughs> there we go. They and hashed it out on screen. 
And with that, I think uh, I think that's it for Charade. We're going to go ahead and listen to some Audrey Hepburn singing from Stanley Donnan's Funny Face right now, and then we'll be back with, with news, the cinema essentials, and more on Stanley Donnan. I was taught that I ought not expose my inner senses. I had no plan for a man. I was full of self-defenses. Now I feel that I really should face the consequences. My philosophic search has left me in the love. I must find why my mind is behaving like a dancer. What's the clue to pursue? For I have to have the answer. weekly news section where we talk about what's going on in the world of movies before we uh we get to our discussion of the remake of charade uh the truth about charlie each week the movies we pick we try and kind of tie in with something that's going on in the world and we couldn't uh we couldn't think of anything for this week but apparently charade is coming out in a new blu-ray edition uh this week uh i have the criterion blu-ray i don't know Mike, if you if you had to rent charade or I, I got it from Scarecrow Video, which by the way, I I, don't, I think this is the first time we've talked about Scarecrow on the show. Uh, Scarecrow is the greatest video store in the world, people. Um, if you're not from the Seattle area, um, Scarecrow's come through for me on so many so many occasions, um, and I think I've gotten almost every film that we have watched, um, besides the ones that I've owned from Scarecrow, including both of the films for next week. So. Shout out to Scarecrow. Thanks. Yeah, every week uh, I drag my, my two kids under age two to Scarecrow and we go and, and load up on, on two for one Wednesdays. So, uh, But anyway, speaking of, of Criterion Blu-rays, uh, I think the Criterion of Charade might be part of the uh, the big Barnes & Noble 50% off Criterion sale that Ooh. happens uh, every twice, uh, twice a year. It just started this week. It'll run through, I think, the end of July. So now is the time to buy Criterion DVDs. Before Barnes & Noble does not exist anymore. Before Barnes & Noble <laughs> doesn't exist anymore. Uh, do you have any uh, Criterion recommendations for the people out there, Mike? Uh, I would recommend... Well, I just, you know, I just uh, watched Fallen Angels, uh, Wong Kar Wai's film, and I, on my wish list I've had the Blu-ray of uh, In the Mood for Love, which is my favorite uh, Wong Kar Wai film. I just um, I just got that one. My my kids gave it to me for Father's Day. Oh, how sweet and yeah. very astute for being under the age of two. Yeah, they are. Uh, they're pretty smart kids. Yeah, they're they're prodigies. Yeah, 
Incredibly ugly, though. Uh, <laughs> so I'd recommend In the Mood for Love. <laughs> in the Mood for Love is a great pick. Uh, the Criterion of Chunking Express, because not an episode of the George Sanders Show can go by without me talking about Chunking Express. Um, that is also uh, an excellent buy. Um, I would recommend uh, the... Uh, I like... To get the Eclipse series mm. at uh, at fifty percent off time because they're they're often really expensive but they're good value for for your money with the sale. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and recommend the the late Ozu set and also the silent Ozu set. You can get uh, you get both sets. That's eight movies by Yasujiro Ozu and they're all awesome. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. The, um, the other piece of news this week. I mean, there's not. Not too much going on, but um, I was thrilled to see that earlier this week, um, The Dissolve, which is a new film website uh, created by basically the entire former film staff of the AV Club, uh, which is the Onions uh, pop culture offshoot. Um, They all defected from uh, the AV Club earlier this year uh, and have... Now debuted their new site, The Dissolve, and I checked it out last night, and it's really cool. Um, they've got some really interesting uh, features up there, and I think it's going to be really great. And some of my favorite writers uh, will be writing for them, like Noel Murray and Tosh Robinson, and there's a whole bunch of people. Um, people may be familiar with Scott Tobias, he appears on Film Spotting from time to time. And, uh, yeah, some really great stuff, so I'm, I'm very excited about The Dissolve uh, coming out. Yeah, I'm looking forward to them, too. I have... Uh... I have this stuff uh, bookmarked, but I haven't gotten to it yet because I don't have any time. Yeah. Well, it's 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 a flashy little page. I'm still navigating it, but uh, it looks pretty cool. So with that, we will move on to our section, Cinema Essentials, where each week we think of uh, what we think is the quintessential film for, you know, some sort of style or feeling or what, what have you. And this week, since we're doing The Truth About Charlie, uh, we're going to talk about what we think is the Cinema Essential remake. Um, you know, a film that was, you know, probably a success and somewhere down the line someone decided to do it over again and maybe, I don't know if yours is, is your remake, do you think your remake is better than the original version of the film? Well, I have, I have a couple remakes because I don't know which one you're going to pick. (laughs) Why don't don't you you tell me what yours is since I went first last week and then, and then I'll be able to answer your question. Okay. Well, Originally, the first thing I thought of was Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn by Sam Raimi, uh, which I think is a fantastic, I think it's a perfect movie, um, and I've seen it a zillion times, but then I realized far too late uh, that I've never actually seen Evil Dead 1, so I can't actually consider the quality yeah, of it. would com- be kind of unfair. Yeah, it would be kind of unfair. So it's, it's much better than the first one. That's what I've heard, and I think that's why I just keep rewatching it. I've seen Army of Do- Darkness, which I like quite a bit, too. Um, but I do and need that would to be for our essential sequels. List. There we go. Um, so what I so what I did uh, end up picking um, was uh, Sweet and Lowdown, which is Woody Allen's Jazz Age uh, adaptation of Fellini's La Strada. Uh, it came out in '99, I believe. Yes. Uh, Sean Penn plays a jazz guitarist, uh, the second best jazz guitarist after Django Reinhardt, um, and he's in a relationship with. Um, a woman named Hattie, um, played by Samantha Morton, uh, mute. She's a, she's mute. And I saw that movie, um, it played at this 
theater on Van Ness in San Francisco uh, when it came out in 99. And I was living on the peninsula at the time, and I would take the train uh, up to the city and see movies and stuff. And I saw Sweet and Low Down. I think it was opening week. I, it didn't play for very long because that movie kind of disappeared pretty quickly. Um, I loved it. I mean, I just was floored by it. Thought it was. I just thought it was. Fantastic. Had you seen La Strada before? I can't remember where it fell in my list because I, I think I saw La Strada around the same time. I might have seen Sweet and Low Down first, but I, I definitely saw La Strada around the same time in my life. Um, but I ended up loving um, Sweet and Low Down so much that I ended up taking the train up to San Francisco twice more uh, in the next like week or two and seeing the movie three times in the theater. Um, I haven't seen it since then uh, because it's such a special memory for me, and I have a feeling that the second half of the movie probably doesn't hold up as well as I would like to think it does. Once Hattie leaves the screen and she disappears for a while and Uma Thurman shows up in my head, I think that the movie kind of falls apart there maybe a little bit, but it's generally the case when Uma Thurman shows up. Uma's just fine. (laughs) She's no Samantha Morton though. I'll tell you that much, but, um, well, that is true. Yeah. But I really love sweet and low down. Um, And I love La Strada too. I, um, I would have to watch them both again to see which one I prefer. I do own the Criterion of La Strada, which you could also buy at the Barnes & Noble sale, probably, um, which is a fantastic film. It might be it might be my favorite Fellini. It, um, it, you know, Julieta Messina, Anthony Quinn. I mean, it's just great. It's definitely one of my top five Fellini. <laughs> no, I, I mean, think I've only seen five, but... Yeah, I I mean, I think the closest contender would probably be Juliet of the Spirits, maybe. Which I also saw in San Francisco, uh, High on Mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that would help. I haven't actually seen Juliet of the Spirits. It's pretty crazy. Uh, I, I Am Boring, Eight and a Half is my favorite Fellini. Yeah, that's really good, too. You know, you know what? But Fellini, I, I, I like uh, Knights of Kiberia more than... Knights of Kiberia is really good, More too. than La Strada. Yeah, I mean, it might be a sentimental pick, La Strada, um, for me. You know what Fellini movie I can't get into? La Dolce Vita. I, I haven't tried to watch it in, in 15 years. I've tried to watch it twice in the course of my life, and both times I've stopped. Like, I really, I, I, for some reason, I, I, you know, I know one of these days I will climb that mountain, but it hasn't I'm, happened yet. I'm looking forward to watching it again someday. I, I imagine I will like it much more the second time around, now that I'm older. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, What's your Cinema Central remake, Sean? Well, I you know I had to come up with some parameters for this because you know remakes it's such it's such a broad topic and and there's so many ways that you can remake something. So I had to I had to disqualify everything that was just a readaptation of another material. Mm-hmm. So like uh, uh, Throne of Blood isn't a remake of Orson Welles's Macbeth; it's sure. just another adaptation of sure. of Shakespeare's play. Um, and then I wanted. What about what about stuff that was like originally so like something like the front page which was originally like a stage thing? Yeah, the cut out. That doesn't count. Cut out. It has to be like a, a remake of of a film. Got it. Uh, and I wanted it. Uh, what I what I look for in a remake is is not a recreation of the original. And I think that's the, when we when we go to a remake. That's a lot of our expectations, especially if we've seen the previous movie. Mm-hmm. Where we're watching it, saying, well. You know, it wasn't done this way before. Why, mm-hmm. you know, this is dumb. They did it wrong. 
Right. Uh, like when you like when you hear a cover song and they change the tempo or they change the key and it's like this doesn't sound right. Right. Uh, I want something that that doesn't sound right, but doesn't sound right for you know a good re- uh, a good end. It takes the same material and makes something new and interesting out of it. Mm-hmm. So the. The pick I'm going with, we have a, a kind of a Hitchcockian theme here. I'm going with uh, uh, his own remake of uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much mm. from 1956 with uh, with Jimmy Stewart and Doris Day. A Jimmy Stewart pick, Sean? Yes, a Jimmy Stewart <laughs> pick. Uh, the original Man Who Knew Too Much is this really, really tight, really exciting uh, kind of hostage drama with, with Peter Lorre as the villain and... The whole the whole movie is very compact. It takes place in like seventy five minutes in just a few locations, and it's really suspenseful. It's um, one of his his great uh, uh, British films from the nineteen thirties. But the remake is it's like over two hours long. Um, it, it takes place in a lot of different locations. It's in color. There's all this kind of weird family drama and the uh, exploration of the dynamics in the marriage between Jimmy Stewart and Doris Day. Um, and I think it. it, it makes a really interesting commentary on the kind of domestic life in the 1950s that that is very specific to its time and place. Like, the, the remake of Man Who Knew Too Much couldn't be made in 1934 because mm-hmm. the society that it comes out of didn't exist then. So it's a completely different movie with the same basic plot of a guy who, like, kidnaps a kid and sure. is trying to assassinate somebody. The details aren't important. It's, it's Hitchcock. The details don't matter. Right. Uh... Have you seen? I have not. I've seen, you know, Hitchcock, I've probably seen more Hitchcock movies than any other director, and yet there's so much more for me to see. I mean, I own both of those box sets that came out, um, the Universal one and then the one that has, was it Warner's or the one that has uh, North by Northwest and stuff on that? Yeah. Um, and I've been meaning to watch both of those. I think I have them on my watch list um, on Amazon or something, but... Uh, I just have not gotten around to it, so I really need to see it. But I want to see the first one first, obviously. Yeah, the uh, the first one uh, there's a there's a Hitchcock series coming up at the uh, Sip Cinema in Seattle, and they're doing uh, uh, his like nine remaining silent films, and then they're also playing some of his British movies, and they're playing the original Man Who Knew Too Much on the same night as the Thirty Nine Steps. Yeah, at I, the end of this month. So if you haven't seen them, definitely definitely go check those out and then watch the remake. Because mm-hmm. the remake is good, and it, Doris Day sings "K Sera Sera." Boom! <laughs> that, that's your you know your tickets paid for right there, my friend. Uh, yeah, that, and yeah, thanks for mentioning that Sith uh, series because uh, I'm going to definitely make it out to some of the Silence because I haven't seen any of the Silence, and I would like to go see some of the British ones I haven't seen. I've 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 seen the Lady Vanishes, uh, which they're also playing. Uh, yeah, they're I, playing that with uh, with uh, Blackmail, which is the first. Uh, uh, completely all talking uh, uh, British film. That's awesome. That's a really good movie. It's pretty fun. Yeah. So yeah, go check that stuff out. Um, and now, uh, as we segue into the remake, we're going to talk about the creator of the original of Charade, uh, Stanley Donnan. Tell us about Stanley Donnan, Sean. Stanley Donnan is a, an interesting director because he's he's one of those guys who made a lot of really good movies, but he never really seems as as personal an artist as a, a contemporary like like Vincent Minnelli, mm-hmm. um, he's most famous for his for his musicals, especially his, his collaborations with Gene Kelly in uh, On the Town and Singing in the Rain. Uh, he also did Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and Pajama Game. Uh, 
Uh, also with Doris Day. Also with Doris Day. Uh, in the 60s, he, he kind of went away from musicals as the musical died. He did, he did Charade. He did another movie with Audrey Hepburn that's, that's really interesting called Two for the Road, which, uh, in which she and Albert Finney are a married couple going on vacation in France. And the film takes place over three different time periods, and they're intercut. It's like the first time they went there, and then in the middle when they're, you know, they're young and, and newly married, and then the third time when their marriage is falling apart, and it cuts through all of these times as they go through on the same vacation. And it's really kind of kind of uh, uh, formally interesting the structure. That sounds awesome. <laughs> I've never I've never heard of that movie. I need to check that. That's out. good. It's from 1967. Uh, I've never uh, uh, properly rated it on my website because uh, when I watched it, I missed like the first 15 minutes. Oh, but yeah. uh, from that point on, the movie was really good. That sounds really it's cool. Something I've always meant to to rewatch. Anyway, that kind of playfulness and experimentation is is really, in my mind, what what marks him as distinct as a director. Like he's just kind of willing to willingness to to play around with with film form and movie structure and just kind of try anything and just see what sticks and and the end result usually ends up being a really entertaining movie although like we were saying with with charade there's not really there's not like a dark heart to stanley donnan he just is a a really good filmmaker well do you think you could pick a donnan like in a lineup do you think you could pick a donnan film out do you think he has distinctive enough style to be like oh this feels yeah no i i, I don't i yeah I, I i don't think he's he's that personal of a filmmaker yeah um he's a good craft that, that being said there's like a dozen stanley donnan films that i've seen and i've enjoyed all of them sure uh, yeah absolutely i mean like we discussed during charade you know it's it's not it's not a bad thing to just be really capable at your job <laughs> Yeah, uh, I wanted uh, two two of his musicals that don't get uh, kind of the they don't have the reputation of of the Gene Kelly ones or Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, which Seven Brides for Seven Brothers has is one great scene with a terrible movie around it, but mm. that one scene is really is really awesome. Yeah, uh, he did a, a musical with Debbie Reynolds and Bob Fosse called Give a Girl a Break. That's really cool, and it's got like some really interesting dance sequences with with Fosse's choreography and and just kind of weird, uh, playful set design with with Stanley Donnan and uh, and the the second movie is it's always Fair Weather with uh, with Gene Kelly, um, which is is one of the darkest musicals that that Hollywood ever produced. It's uh, it takes place ten years after the end of World War II, and it kind of reprises the the characters from On the Town. In, in On the Town, um, the three sailors arrive in New York on shore leave, and they have like this wonderful adventure, and it's this really happy movie where they, they meet up with women, and they have a lot of fun, and the whole world is like open to these wonderful experiences. And then ten years later, we get It's Always Fair Weather, and the, the three soldiers uh, reunite, or sailors, I can't remember which they are. Uh, they reunite, and basically the, the last 10 years of their lives have been the steady downhill slide from this high, this this kind of post-war euphoria that they had, mm-hmm. to where they're just, they're all really depressed and miserable in the 1950s, and, and it's just kind of this dark side to the uh, the middle-class ideal of the 50s, all in a musical that has like a 10-minute sequence of Gene Kelly on roller skates. <laughs> So you know it's it's uh, it's one of it's one of Kelly's most interesting films and and um, yeah I I definitely recommend that.
Cool. Stanley Dunn. Good man. Also, in 1968, made a film called Bedazzled with Dudley Moore, which I haven't seen, but it was remade not too long ago, starring... Uh, Brendan Fraser. Brendan Fraser and Elizabeth Hurley. We're not going to talk about that movie. <laughs> We're going to talk about another remake of a Stanley Donnan film, Jonathan Demme's The Truth About Charlie. was a clip from The Truth About Charlie uh, from 2002, Jonathan Demme's remake of Charades starring Tandy Newton in the Audrey Hepburn role and none other than Marky Mark Wahlberg in the Cary Grant part. It's a very uh, unusual film. It was much maligned at the time of its release. Uh, I think it's about to get a little more maligned <laughs> as we get into to Mike's reaction to it. Um, it's it's a very different film than Charade. While, while it basically follows the exact same plot with much of the same dialogue, at least up until the end, the, the feel of the movie is, is very different from the kind of romantic, playful Paris of 1963. We get a, 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 a much darker, more, uh, less idealized uh, uh, Paris of, of crowded streets and, and dank alleyways and... You know, it's a very different kind of populace as opposed to like the playful German immigrants who are, you know, cheerful and goofy that that Audrey Hepburn encounters. There's there's a lot of uh, kind of scary faces and there's people everywhere. And are you saying Agnes Varda has a scary face? No, not at all. <laughs> Although, well, I guess we'll we'll get into that. Yeah, uh, that that uh, that leads us to the other you know major difference in the film is that it's it's. It's filled with allusions to the French New Wave, which uh, Jonathan Demme has said, you know, that the, the thing that struck him about Charade was that it was, as Stanley Donnan was making it, uh, Jean-Luc Godard and François Truffaut were making these kind of revolutionary films, like, just down the streets. And so he kind of wanted to integrate the New Wave into Charade's plotline. He failed miserably. <laughs> uh, I... I, 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 when I watched this, I watched this the same day I watched Charade. I watched it about, I don't know, eight hours uh, later in the day. And I told myself, I'm going to watch this. I'm going to try and go into this as, you know, fresh as I can, having just seen the remake, you know, eight hours before. And I'm really not trying to pick this movie apart in comparison to Charade. I'm really not. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to treat it as its own thing. Um, and I think it's just a mess. I think it's just... I. If I want to be nice, I can kind of applaud Demi's idea of what he wanted to do with this. Um, but I think he's torn between the two sides of it, where he wants to make this, you know, 
this remake of Charade, as it were, and then he also wants to salute the French New Wave, and I think he's not invested in either of them enough to give them what they what they need. I think he's not invested in the story at the heart of this movie, the Charade story, at all. When I was watching this, I felt like he was his camera was much more interested in catching <clears throat> things that were happening on the sidelines. He wasn't invested in the relationships between the, the main characters, um, and his incorporation of the French New Wave stuff where there are cameos by Agnes Varda and Anna Karina and Charles Aznavar, Charles Aznavar uh, from Shoot the Piano Player, uh, they're distracting. I mean, to me, when I was watching it, I was watching the movie and Agnes Varda appears for just a second, but it's as close-up of her face as... Uh, She's she, unloading umbrellas she, from Shorebird. Yes, you know. Um, <laughs> and, and I just, I was like... Agnes Varda? What's she doing there? And then, and then it takes you out of the movie. I mean, at least it did for me. Um, and, you know, there's a way to salute um, an era of film. And, you know, and it, it can be done well, I think. But I think here, it's he, Demi just fumbles the, the whole thing. I just really... I, I could not get on board with this movie at all. Um, I liked I like seeing Agnes Varda. I like the idea of like Anna Karina leading people in a in a dance in a bar. Um, I don't know that it's that it's really well integrated into into the movie. No. It's like a, a cohesive whole. It just seems like a hey, look the new wave. Yeah. And by the way, I'm making this movie over here. And this movie over here, I think, is actually is actually pretty interesting. And for the first half of the movie, it, it follows charade pretty closely. And then somewhere around like the last half hour, last 40 minutes or so, it kind of turns into a different movie entirely. And, and that's, that's what I want to see out of a remake. I want to I see him going in like a different direction with the same basic setup. And I think he does that. And I think my criticism of Charade was that it was all surfaces with no real depth. And I think the criticism of The Truth About Charlie is it's all depth without the surface. Like the actual enjoyment of the plot doesn't really work because the plot doesn't really make sense because all of a sudden the main kind of leap in the film is that the Tandy Newton, Audrey Hepburn character kind of becomes friends with the, the three, the three people who are after the money. And then when they start dying, she gets really upset by this. But whereas in the, the previous film, they're just the monsters and evil and they die and, and yay, we're happy about that because they suck. So, whereas in Charade, everyone plays with surfaces, but they really are who they appear to be. In The Truth About Charlie, the play with surfaces is there, but everyone is actually different from who they appear to be. The, the, the bad guys really aren't all that bad. Mm-hmm. And, and that leads to the conclusion with, uh, with the standoff with Tim Robbins and, and Marky Mark and, and the whole French police. Tim Robbins plays the Walter Matthau character. And, right. And... Marky Mark plays uh, Cary Grant, right? And and how it plays out in in Charade, Walter Matthau's like, no, you got to believe me, and Cary Grant says, no, you got to believe me, and Audrey Hepburn, you know, can't choose because mm-hmm. everyone's lying to her. When when Tim Robbins confronts Marky Mark, he's he's he immediately gives up the game. He's like, ah! hey, hi, I'm this guy that everyone thought was dead, and you were the guy who I was pretending to be. Yeah, and Tandy Newton's like, what? Yeah. But, you know, the pretense is immediately disposed of, and then the scene becomes something else, which is, is not a shootout. It's not an action sequence. It's everyone trying to, to put down their guns and not let the whole thing end in violence. 
there's a much more kind of humane approach to the story than you got in in charade it was my least favorite part of the movie too and i i i mean and and once again not comparing it to what happens in charade but that scene goes on forever and that it it you just get bored to it but you know they uh demi as he does earlier in the picture too he incorporates these flashbacks to the time when uh uh, Tim Robbins' character was in the war with Charlie and with the other, you know, villains or whatever you want to call them. in Yugoslavia or something. Right. Um, and he, he keeps he keeps going back to these these flashbacks, and they're they're muddled and loud and noisy, and um, they don't contribute anything to the film. And especially in that final end, the the finale of the film, it just drags it on to this glacial pace, and then finally once. Robbins gives up the gun. I mean, it's just deflation. You know, there's no, and I don't think that's what Demi was going for. I, I you know, I, 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 I could be wrong. But. I think, I think he is trying to deflate. I think he wants to deflate the, the suspense thriller aspect of his movie. I think he wants to, to turn it into something else. Well, he didn't turn it into anything worthwhile. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I'm not trying. The, to... the, the problem for me comes with the, the end credits, where it has this little tag where. Uh, uh, where Charlie's mom yeah. uh, poisons Tim Robbins in prison and kills him. Yeah. Which is like this, you know, it's kind of a funny black comedy joke, right. but it totally undermines the uh, the kind of non-violent conclusion. Hey, you know, everyone, let's not kill anybody. Right. But, then, but now you're going to die. But then, you know, he he gives you your cake and then, and then makes you eat it. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, I just felt... I, I could not get invested in, in this story at all. Um, I think uh, I think Mark Wahlberg, and I've only seen Mark Wahlberg in a couple of things, and he can be really good when he's playing the one thing that he can play well, like when he plays in The Departed. He's, he's phenomenal. I think, I think he was totally, um, you know, deserving of the Oscar nom that he got for that. Um here, did he actually get an Oscar nomination? He did. He was, I think he's the only actor for The Departed that got a nomination, which yeah. is well, he's really good. He's movie. fantastic. Um, here, he has to stretch a bit, and he can't do it. There's there's one moment in the movie, literally one moment in the movie, when I believe Mark Wahlberg, and it's after um, it's when we see him leaving Tandy Newton and going to meet with the. Uh, the villains in, in the adjoining hotel room, which is we discussed earlier in the straight part two, where, you know, Cary Grant comes back and there's a little bit hint of sinisterism with him or whatever. But there's a shot of Wahlberg walking down the uh, hallway to the hotel room. And uh, it's just shot from behind. And he, he leaves Newton in her room and he's been, you know, this sweet, you know, nice guy or whatever. But then he's walking down the hall and he, and he, kicks into the Wahlberg Boston strut, you know, the, like, tough guy, you know, <laughs> da, da, da. And he's wearing a beret and a turtleneck, by the way, at this point. But, uh, <laughs> which is just really, really hilarious to see. But he's walking down the hall to this other room, and he kind of goes into his tough guy persona just as he's walking there. I believe that one second of film from Mark Wahlberg. But what did you think of Mark Wahlberg in this movie? Uh, Marky Mark has an impossible task here. He's, he's, he's playing the Cary Grant part, and... Marky Mark has many things as an actor, but Charming is not one of them. He's 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 dopey. Yeah. He can be menacing, as in The Departed. You know, charisma, charm, effervescence. 
yeah. comedy, not his bag. Not his bag. You know uh, and, and, and Demi knows that, and, and that was his, his direction to him, was, was to be the opposite of Cary Grant. And I think he succeeds <laughs> in being the opposite of Cary Grant. <laughs> Congratulations, where, Mark whereas, Wahlberg. <laughs> where, whereas Cary Grant is, is one of the charming, most charming, most charismatic actors in the history of film, Marky Mark in, the, in this film is, is neither of those things. But, you know, but, but if Demi recognized that, then it completely undermines the story of the movie because there's zero chemistry between him and Newton. Zero chemistry whatsoever. Right. And so the whole movie, which hinges upon that one component, doesn't work. Right, which is, which is why I say that it, it's got the depth without the surface. Like, it doesn't have the surface charm yeah. in order to get you to go along with the kind of humanistic message that Demi wants to send. It doesn't have that that initial, hey, pay attention to this movie because these two actors are really entertaining and you like right. watching them. And, oh, by the way, people are, are you know not always what you, you, they appear to be. Right. It's missing that first step. Now, I don't, I don't think that Demi intended for the role to be played by an entirely charismaless actor. <laughs> I think he intended him, for him to be, you know, just kind of a, a, a young, kind of dopey, all-American white red kind of kid yeah that w- would still have like a movie star presence like I, I kept imagining uh matt damon in the part and i think matt damon could have made it work oh absolutely i, think, I can I think, think of... he has that that charm as an actor but yeah. he can still play the kind of dopey unsophisticated type sure as opposed to the the carrie grant sure yeah i'm not saying that it you know it needed you know um i think tandy newton um you know, she's not going for Audrey Hepburn, but I think she does just fine. You know, I think yeah. she's great. T- Tandy Newton's very much doing her own thing, but it and it works. And it she's, works just fine. She's totally charming. Yeah, and I yeah, I could you know we could rattle off five ten actors working today or working you know ten years ago that could have been swapped out for Mark Wahlberg, and it would have made the, the picture uh, much better, in my opinion. Um, what did you think of Tim Robbins? Uh, I couldn't figure out why Tim Robbins was trying to do Walter Matthau's accent. Yeah, I couldn't either. <laughs> I really couldn't figure it out. And it was fleeting, too, because it would kind of come and go, and it would be... Tim Robbins is an actor who makes a lot of questionable decisions. Yeah. And and I think this is one of them. It's not quite up there with uh, his performance in, in Spielberg's War of the Worlds. That was the first thing that came to my mind, too. <laughs> but, uh... Which, I, you know, I kind of have to... I kind of have to... <laughs> Give him some sort of kudos for that because that is the weirdest thing in the world. In the War of the Worlds, I mean, it's 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 a very strange movie. It's very weird. It's t- speaking of remakes, speaking of remakes, yeah, absolutely. Well, technically, it's a readaptation, right? But um, okay, so um, with me too, it seemed like Demi was throwing things at the wall to see what would stick. Um, like going back to camera work or something. That he does these annoying, distracting things. Like, there's the scene outside of the hotel, I think the first time he's t- uh, Wahlberg's talking to, I think, the French uh, police detective. Yeah. Um, and he does this spinning circular camera thing Yeah, there's a, there's no a, lot, of, a lot of uh, odd camera movements. Like, one of the first scenes with, with Tandy and Mark Wahlberg together are... Uh, it's just kind of shot reverse shot close-ups of them, but the camera's panning across them in different directions as yeah. the, the camera goes by. Or it'll spin around them um, as they're having a conversation, but there'll be like weird cuts, so it's not a, a smooth circle 
as uh, as the different person talks. And my assumption is that he's doing this, and that's part of his homage to the new wave, is, you know, they did these interesting things with editing and with camera work and stuff like that. Um, but it's it, it's terrible here. Well, I think I think I think what he's what he's going after is kind of a a, a decentering effect of a, a world that's off kilter and a, of shifting perceptions, and you're not you're never really on stable ground. And there's like a, there's a shot reverse shot sequence where Tandy Newton, who's who's fairly short, is talking to Tim Robbins, who's very tall, and the 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 shot reverse shot is is at angles, so you're at each person's point of view, either looking down at right. her or looking right up at him, and. You know, he does a lot of point of view shots. He talked about the the corpse um, corpse <laughs> eye view, which which uh, he uses uh, several times, and uh, that kind of uh, point of view shots is are uh, a demi staple. Is trying to put you inside another person's head. Yeah, but when I think of point of view shots, like for example, and this is where I start comparing it to charade. In charade, there's the scene uh, where George Kennedy is in the room alone with Audrey Hepburn and it's really tense and you get a point of view shot from both of them and it's super spooky, but it just happens for a second and really just puts you in the moment and it, and then it's over and it happens. And here it's just like it, to me, it just felt random. Um, he shoots, uh, Demi shoots a couple of scenes near the end, uh, on digital mm-hmm. outside, um, which is just kind of jarring. Like why? Why are we doing this? I don't know. It, we, we're we're going to try this camera out. Um, and then also, I thought in Charade, you know, they, it's, they, both films take place in Paris, as you said. And, and it's, yeah, different versions of Paris that we see. Um, but there's the, um, there's the great shot in Charade <clears throat> where Grant and Hepburn are walking along. I think they're having the ice cream or whatever. And... Um, the, the shot's pretty close in on them, and uh, Audrey Hepburn points out Notre Dame or whatever, and the camera pulls, and you see it, and, and Cary Grant has a great line, oh, where did that come from, or whatever, which is really... Right, it's just kind of a goofy, really great. romantic view of Paris. Right, exactly, it's, it's nice to see that. This, you know, this amazing bit of architecture. Yeah. What's the last shot in this movie before, in Truth About Charlie, before they go to the credits? The Eiffel Tower. I mean, it's, it, it's like, you know, Why? Why do you, like, did you have to throw the stupid Eiffel Tower in? Well, the Eiffel Tower is in Charade as well. Well, I know, but it's not, like, the final shot of the movie, like, here we go, boom, Eiffel Tower. You know, like, it's just, it just seemed it stupid and gratuitous and lame, and I'm sorry, I just really, I, I oof, this was, this was a turkey. <laughs> it was a, it was Foie gras. Foie gras. Foie gras. It was foie gras. It was goose liver. <laughs> yes. Speaking of liverwurst. That's right. Um, you mentioned Marky Mark's beret. And, uh, <laughs> yes, let's talk more about Marky Mark's beret. He, he, he's wearing a beret in one scene, and it's you know it's hilarious. It's Marky Mark wearing a turtleneck and a beret. And then, and then in, in the next scene, he's wearing a fedora. And the night, the night before we watched this, uh, uh, my wife and I watched uh, Samuel Hung's Wheels on Meals. His uh, comedy from 1984 with with Jackie Chan, mm-hmm. and uh, the clothes in that movie are are just ridiculous. It's it's like the the three leads were were having a contest to see who could wear the most hideous outfit, and and throughout the movie, uh, Samuel Hung keeps wearing a, a different hat, each hat more ridiculous than the last one. <laughs> yeah, so it's like he's playing this 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 game of of the silly hat game, 
Mm-hmm. And and I was really hoping that Marky Mark was going to be playing the silly hat game because he went from the beret to the fedora, but then he goes back to a beret, and I'm pretty sure it was the same beret. So yeah, I, I was a little disappointed there. Well, you know, this is another yeah. Talking about uh, Mark Wahlberg, he he doesn't have a sense of humor at all, and I think you know there was that Saturday Night Live thing, uh, Andy Samberg, you know, being right, Marky Mark like talking, talking to, to a goat. goat, and so I think. <laughs> After that happened, and I think I, I, I could be, you know, making things up in my head, but I think originally Mark Wahlberg didn't take too kindly to that portrayal of him talking to animals. Um, but I, I feel like there's been this shift in the last several years where Mark Wahlberg is trying, like, I don't know if his agent was like, we need to prove that you have a sense of humor, but now Mark Wahlberg is appearing in these comedies. He's not really funny in them. He's playing a straight man, like he's in The Other Guys well, maybe with Will Ferrell. Maybe it was his... Uh... His experience uh, producing Entourage. Maybe that was it, you know. <laughs> uh, but I just, I, it, to me, when I see, you know, a poster like that movie Ted with the teddy bear, right? you know, and it just feels so calculated, like Mark Wahlberg is now being like, I'm funny, guys, seriously, believe me, you know, but I just can't buy it from this guy. He's just, he's, he's Marky Mark. He will always be Marky Mark to me. Yeah, it's not, it's not a, it's not a good fit for him, and. What's what's disappointing is that is that this movie could have made Tandy Newton a bigger star. She's really good, yeah, like we said. And I, you know, I think the only thing I've seen her in since since this is is Crash, which Ooh. is terrible. Wasn't she in uh, Oliver Stone's W too? I haven't seen it, but I think she she I plays Condoleezza Rice. I think I, I saw that movie. I, I think I've forgotten all of it. <laughs> yeah, no, but she's really good, and and. I, the moments of her that I really liked are the moments where she's alone. Like, she has the a couple scenes uh, in the hotel room by herself. She gets drunk, and she's, you know, playing around and stuff. And she's really she's fun. She's, like trying to find the uh, the money. Yeah, she's really game for stuff. And, and she's, yeah, she's the antithesis of Mark Wahlberg in this film. Um, that would make her Cary Grant, right? Because if, right. op- <laughs> if Marky Mark is the opposite of Cary Grant, and she's the antithesis of Marky Mark, then Dandy Newton is Cary Grant. We need a chalkboard. We need to. We need to chart this out. <laughs> well, in closing, um, I don't know what to say about this. What do you want to say in closing? Well, uh, the the truth about Charlie came up on uh, another podcast I listen to called The Cinephiliacs, which is a really good show, and you should all you should all listen to it. And uh, on on that episode, the uh, the critic being interviewed was was uh, Keith Ulick. Mm-hmm. Time Out New York? Yeah, Time Out New York and is is a terrific critic and he was a big fan of Truth About Charlie and he talks about it as uh, as kind of indicative of, of Jonathan Demme's work and Jonathan Demme's humanism and he thinks it's a great movie. You think it's a terrible movie. I I think I'm somewhere in the middle. Like, I, all of like the surface... Way problem, to hedge your bets, Sean. The, every, every criticism you have of the film, I totally agree with but also, you know, everything, everything that... that uh, that uh, Ulick says on the, on the show about about um, the kind of humanity and the humaneness of, of Jonathan Demme's vision of the film really kind of resonates with me. So I I see it both ways. I'm like I'm in the middle. I'm sorry, Keith. I didn't I didn't see the humanism there. Uh, I I just I didn't care. I just didn't care at all. I wanted it to end. Um, well. So it goes, you know, I mean, 
Yeah, I, what I like about this show, doing this show, is that I, you know it is making me branch out and see things that I normally wouldn't see. And you know, I've there's demi's, you know, there's some demi films that I quite like. You know, I, I wouldn't consider myself a fan, uh, you know, but I. I what, what have you seen from Jonathan? Demi? I've seen uh, Stop Making Sense. Uh, which I saw on the big screen in Olympia, Washington, and I, I really, I'm not, I'm not a huge Talking Heads fan. I, I like them just fine. I, it's kind of like how I feel about the Talking Heads. I think I, I, I appreciate Jonathan Demme. I, 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 you know, I can dig what he's trying to do most of the time, um, but I'm not going to pull him out and you know, rock out to him every day or something like that. You know, I like the Talking Heads. That's fine. Have you heard uh, Weird Al's song "Dog Eat Dog"? It's his his. Like style pastiche of Talking Heads. No, it's amazing. Okay, it's really good. Um, what's your favorite Jonathan Demi film? Uh, well, Silence of the Lambs probably probably his best. Uh, mm-hmm. Philadelphia, I'm not a fan of. Um, What'd you think of Rachel Getting Married? I really liked Rachel Getting Married and Something Wild uh, uh, with uh, Jeff Daniels and Melanie Griffith from 1986 is a really cool movie. Last year, I saw his his first film, the women in prison film *Caged Heat* oh, from yeah. 1974, and that movie is really cool. That was Corman, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started uh, working with uh, with Roger Corman when he was uh, a young filmmaker. Yeah, uh, I, I'm interested actually tying this in with uh, Jim Jarmusch from last week. I, I'm interested to see uh, the three Neil Young documentaries that Jonathan Demme's done because I'm a huge Neil fan, and uh, I. Especially the last one, I forget what it was called. It came out last last year, I think. Um, Neil goes back to Canada, and uh, I saw Neil the trailer for it. Journeys, yeah, and Journeys, yeah. And I'd, I'd I'd be really interested to see that stuff because uh, I am a big Neil Young fan. Yeah, I don't I don't think I'll be going out of my way to see his remake of The Manchurian Candidate. No, don't do it. <laughs> after uh, Jonathan Demme remaking another early sixties classic. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, that was the truth about Charlie. Uh, we are going to listen to uh, a little track inspired by the star of Charade. Uh, Audrey Hepburn. Uh, it's by uh, Paul Desmond, a saxophonist with uh, worked a lot with Dave Brubeck. Uh, he had a little crush on Audrey Hepburn, and he wrote this song about her.
All right. And that is our show for this week. We'll be back next week on the George Sanders show. Uh, coming out in theaters on July 19th is Nicholas Winding Refn's new collaboration with Ryan Gosling in which they go to Thailand. We won't be watching that movie no. because, well, that would involve leaving the house and also my Kate's drive. So I really do. <laughs> instead, we're going to take our own little trip to Thailand with uh, Chang Che's 1971 Shaw Brothers film, Duel of Fists, and Wisit Sassanatiang's 2000 film, Tears of the Black Tiger. We'll also be talking about Thai filmmaker Apichapong Wirasethical, and we'll be discussing our most essential kung fu movies. Ooh, that'll be fun. Uh, if you're uh, if you're going to be in the Chicago area this Saturday, July 13th, uh, I, I suggest you head over to the Music Box uh, and check out the matinee of Todd Browning's silent feature, The Unholy Three. Uh, starring Lon Chaney as a ventriloquist who dresses up as an old lady to rob rich people. Um, the film will be screened in 35mm, which will be awesome, and will have live musical accompaniment by organist Dennis Scott. Have you ever seen Unholy 3? No. It's really good. Um, it's not, you know, it's not, I wouldn't put it up with the peak of Browning stuff, um, but it's it's pretty fun. And also, tying in with this show, it was remade about 10 years later uh, as a sound picture, also with Lon Chaney. I haven't seen that. I heard it's not as good. I do like Todd Browning. I think he's a Todd Browning's pretty cool director. Yeah. Um, if you're in the New York area and you missed the big Ozu series at Film Forum, they are bringing back some movies starting this weekend. Uh, they're playing uh, late spring, early summer, Tokyo Twilight, a whole bunch of uh, movies uh, from now until the uh, July 25th. Go check them out, yeah, especially awesome. you know if you haven't bought them in the Eclipse set at the Barnes and Noble <laughs> Criterion sale. It uh, all comes together. Uh, two of my favorite Ozu uh, films are playing there uh, in late spring and, and early summer. Awesome! I would definitely recommend checking those out. Sounds good to me. Uh, so you can always find us on the internet everywhere, uh, here, there, and everywhere. Uh, the George Sanders Show blogspot.com is our homepage. We just added an upcoming calendar so you can uh, prepare for upcoming shows, just like me, because <laughs> I can't keep track of what the heck we're going to be watching. Uh, we're on the Twitter uh, at Geo Sanders Show, right? Yes, nailed it. Um, and then there are links on the George Sanders Show uh, homepage to our blogs and uh, letterboxed accounts and all that stuff. So. I think that's it for this week, Sean. I think you're right. All right. Well, as we do every week, we're going to let our namesake sing us away. So take it away, George. Just a kiss, a sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. And when two lovers woo, they still say I love you. On that you can rely. No matter what the future brings As time goes by 
Jealousy and hate Woman needs man And man must have his mate That no one can deny It's still the same old story A fight for love and glory A case of do or die The world will always welcome lovers As time 